This is The View from Tab. I'm Jim Menick. I'm John Cruz. And I'm Mike Beats. And we're going to pass this over to John. We have exciting news for you, dear listeners, because tonight is our first ever guest star appearance on The View from Tab. Joining us for the discussion is the 2003 North Dakota state champion and top-ranked powerlifter, the current director of debate, (laughs) at Hopkins High School and the director of the Hopkins Royal Cup, Adam Torson. Say well, hi, Adam. Thank you. Hey. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Okay, I haven't gotten past the part, the part where John started with the dear listener. Thing. I almost like, turned it off then and thought we should start, but we'll, we'll just let it go. Adam, it's I also did not here. do that in a suitably dramatic voice, but I was afraid that I'd be sued by uh, the National Forensic League for ripping off the award ceremony, so I apologize yeah. for that. That works. Okay, tonight we want to talk about the new topic, the March April topic, and I was talking to Adam before this. He's a law student. He actually knows something about the law. So that that's good. And one of the things we were just talking about is that this is going to be an odd topic, at least for us around here. We're going to only debate it a couple of times and uh, it'll be our varsity debating it because mm-hmm. um, we're going to be debating it at our NFL qualifier and our, at our CFL qualifier. So it's going to be the varsity debating it. So at one level, it's a very high level of debater, but it's also going to be judged by our most lay judges. Um, because it's districts and, and CFL grants, which have a lot of parents and so forth, um, or people who aren't necessarily experienced in judging LD. So it's going to be an interesting uh, an interesting approach for us, at least, I don't know about other places, but certainly around here, um, you know, a little toned down, uh, I think, more than usual for a topic. Anyhow, um, why don't we just start with um, what is jury nullification? Certainly. Um, jury nullification is when a jury votes to con- to acquit a criminal defendant, even though they think that he has actually uh, broken the law that the, that the government says that he's broken. Um, that is sort of deceptively simple. Um, it's easy to get jury nullification confused. And in talking with um, some students, we've had run into this um, so far, um, to confuse jury nullification with things that are just legitimate reasons to acquit somebody. So for example, um, if a jury votes to acquit somebody because they believe that they are insane at the time uh, they committed the crime, that's not nullification because there's a legal basis for um, that acquittal. There's there's, a you know the insanity defense is an affirmative defense that 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 can be raised. So that's sort of the the first issue is nullification is an is an extra legal um, concept. It's when a jury acquits even though the law says that they should convict. Um, and from there, you know, there are a whole range of interesting issues. And why I was interested to uh, Jim, that when you said that it's going to be debated for a short time because it's sort of an interesting, it's sort of a topic that I think unfortunately needs a little more time to develop. Um, the major reason is that you can't effectively, Jim and I were talking about this a minute ago, uh, do away with nullification. You know, when we have a topic about economic sanctions are good or 
immunization is good. You know, we can do those things or implement programs to do those things. But as long as we have the right to a, an impartial jury trial, it's really hard to actually do away with nullification. So right. the actual policy issues that um, that get debated um, in the context of nullification in the legal community are should we nullify or not? It's should we instruct the jury that they may nullify or should we instruct them that they may not? Should should lawyers be allowed to make arguments for nullification in court? Should we dismiss jurors who say that they that they um, intend to nullify? So that's really sort of the main the, the the you know the main sort of policy implications of the resolution are really do we do those things as opposed to do we nullify or do we not nullify? But I mean, it's, I mean, I look at it a different way, only insofar as that's about the policy, because I don't think you. I mean, the policy seems self-contradictory, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, as compared to the. I mean, it does say the principle. It says principle in the resolution. Mm-hmm. Doesn't yes, the it? principle of jury nullification, which seems like the wrong word to me. But anyhow, I mean, just the idea of jury nullification um, is uh, something that we would want to support, just in in some kind of theory that as. I mean, there's two there's two extremes of the law. I mean, there's the thing where we're sitting around legislating and we come up with laws and say, this is a good law and let's pass this law. And we go through the whole song and dance to pass this law, which has absolutely nothing to do with following the law, obeying the law and doing all that kind of stuff or, you know, prosecuting the law. And so, um, you know, so I guess what I'm thinking of is not whether or not we can or can't do it, because I don't, I think there's sort of, like I said, there's that interior, that inherent logical contradiction as so much as we should allow somebody who isn't a legislator to to, to have um, our a blessing, so to speak, to say this is a bad law and also the power to uh, throw that law out, which is what we're saying. I mean, it is a power that the jury has to throw the law out. Or maybe in, in, even I'm oh, sorry. Go no, that's fine. Maybe, maybe even just the question is: Ought if you're a juror, ought you to nullify or ought you to refrain from nullifying, even if you think the law is unjust? I mean, that, I, that to me, I mean, I, I realize that's not the only way to look at it, but that's the way I, I come to it. Just it, it, it starting. I think out. it makes. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, over the summer, uh, at one of the institutes that I work at, we we used this topic, and that was the approach that a lot of the debaters took, and I think that makes a lot of sense. But then the question is, does an affirmative debater have to defend institutional arrangements that are, that are, that are consistent with letting jurors nullify? So, for example, if the affirmative says jur- jurors ought to be allowed to nullify, can the negative criticize institutional arrangements that would be associated with that conclusion, like right. instructing juries that they can nullify or like um, dismissing jurors who express an intention to nullify? I have just a legal question, which is, I mean, if a jury, you know, does something really bizarre, nullifies, does a judge have any power over that? Or is a judge always stuck with whatever the jury says? Um, a judge is, is stuck, after, at least in a criminal trial. Um, mm-hmm. there, there is the possibility that you could have jury nullification in civil trials. And in that case, the judge, there are certain kinds of powers that the judge has, even mm-hmm. after the verdict, that, that might give them some play, but in criminal trials, um, the, the, the fifth amendment gives you, you know, has the famous double jeopardy protection. And so once you're mm-hmm. acquitted by a jury, that's it. You, you you can't be charged anymore for that crime. I guess I'm thinking I've seen TV shows or something where, uh, you know, the, the jury will come back with, a, we'll give them a bazillion dollars and the judge will say, no, you're getting yep. $2, that kind of stuff, but it yeah. has been civil. So if it's a criminal thing, you're right. Okay. So the, you're done and you're either guilty. Yeah. Well, you're guilty 
then you get you go to appeal. But if you're not guilty, you're not guilty, and you go home, and that's the end of it. Um, right, right. Okay. Well, and the other thing is usually uh, if a judge is going to change something after a verdict has happened, like in that case where, uh, where, where you know, a huge amount is awarded and the judge knocks it down, that's a case where the jury, there's, there's been no nullification, right? The jury has just awarded um, some amount of damages according to the law, and it's the judge's job, at least according to sort of traditional theory, to speak on what the law is. And so if that amount is inconsistent with some um, standing legal principle or inconsistent with the instructions you gave, of the jury, then he might be able to modify a judgment like that. In, in, the, in the average, I mean, but it, no, in, in a criminal case, though, I mean, a judge's job is to make sure everybody obeys the law, right? So making sure that the two lawyers, the two sides don't, you know, do things that are illegal as they're presenting the cases. And then mm. they tell the, they explain to the jury how the jury is supposed to evaluate what they've heard. Isn't that right. correct? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, if they're telling, but, and, and explaining the law, whatever the law is, um, mm -hmm. but all of it is on the jury to make any determination of, in fact, any guilt or innocence. So that's right. The, i we see this guy who is guilty as all hell, but we don't like the law. I mean, is, aren't we in a position, if that's the case, to almost hang every jury. I mean, because one guy doesn't like the law and 11 people do. And aren't we, you know, it that's, that seems to be a recipe for disaster if we allow people to use their own conscience as the guide to whether or not they should prosecute criminals um, in, in the case that they just heard. I mean, I, I, as I hear this, um, I mean, that, that's, that's my negative take on this, I don't, just personal well, there, take. Sure. And then there's also the issue, and I raise this issue a lot at camp, right, that if, if juries just choose to take the power into their own hand, then there's actually nothing constructive being done to change the law, right? Because the basis of finding a law, say, unconstitutional or unjust is, is often through the appeals courts, right? Because it would eventually go to the yeah. Supreme Court and you're, and, and by, I guess, trumping the power of the Supreme Court and taking that into your own hands, uh, you're not going to really be able to change the law in a constructive manner, right? Be especially because juries aren't required. It's not like a judge is giving an oral critique at the end of a debate round, right? Juries don't come forth and say, this is how we reasoned uh, the guilt or innocence of the, of the party in question, right? They don't have to justify That's right. Although, although juries can and often True. do. Um, talk about what the reasons they acquitted, and, and the point you raise is an interesting one. I, 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 uh, um, I think that that's right. There's a, there's an argument to be made that if cases don't ever reach the appellate level, then unjust laws don't get overturned. Um, right. through legitimate means. But then there's also some of the literature, um, and I'm thinking specifically of uh, Paul Butler has written a leading article on this that's called uh, race-based nullification or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and his argument is that if we sort of have a systematic nullification of a particular kind of unjust law, and he's talking about um, laws that unfairly apply to African-American defendants, that that will itself, that sort of rash of nullification will create a, a political impetus um, either to change the law at the very least to discuss um, the issues. So there's sort of two sides to that coin. Well, that, that's that's an important issue then, because that's the whole justification for civil disobedience. Not that we're right. not going to obey the law, but that we're going to change the law through not obeying the law. So if we want to change the law through nullifying, I mean, the, the, then the logic is that. The, 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 who, who is that writer again? Paul Butler. Butler. Paul said? Butler. Yeah. Okay. Where's Beats? Is he still here? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm oh, here. There he is. Okay. Just taking it all in. 
Okay, that's yeah. taking a shower. Yeah. I don't know. He's still reading Chris Palmer's blog from last week. <laughs> Actually, it would take about one week. To, I'm just kidding, Chris. Don't think about us. It, Chris does go on. Okay, but I'm, all right, just to throw this out. I mean, there's no the, – the, the jury can also nullify in the other direction – I mean, this is stupid, but it's also true. I mean, that they can might nullify in the other direction. Think uh, that someone's not guilty, and like for yeah, I mean, I, like, there must be I, some bizarre law. You know where I'm going with that. I, I understand. Think that you could say like the, like the mm-hmm. Enron trial. You could have thought the defense or that the prosecution could do a good enough job, but you think these people are despicable. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. So you oh, I'm guilty. <laughs> yes, that, that would also. I mean, because essentially that would be writing a law that says. The basis for liability or the basis for... But isn't that just jury authoring and not jury nullification? They're not really throwing well, out a law, I mean, right? They're inventing well, a law. No, I mean, it's it's essentially throwing out the law that says here are the requirements to uh, convict, right? Because the prosecution hasn't met them, so the law says they should acquit. But they don't follow that law that says... Oh, that's interesting. Acquit. So, okay, I guess I didn't... Mm. Something seems really odd about that argument to me. I mean, I've mean, just thrown. I mean, I'm just, I, mean I mean, it makes sense. I understand yeah. what you're saying. It's I'm just thinking there's like bizarre twists that I don't think I, you'll on see. On the other a lot hand, I don't think anyone's going to be running theory arguments in the March April topic. Although, actually, now that I think of it, <laughs> are you kidding? Uh, well, actually, some, we should mention that, you know, at, what we're saying is not entirely true about all parts of the country. I just realized, isn't this also the TFA state topic in Texas? Because isn't that the idea that yeah, they I think that is topic? the case? It is the TFA state topic. So, actually, I, I think there will be a range of different. Uh, kinds of approaches taken to this topic just as a thought is um it, if you were to make an analogy to to uh is there a range of nullification um at the beginning you said that if you felt the person was insane um but in what is the does <clears throat> i guess i've never i've i've been on jury duty but i've never actually served on a jury i was uh asked i was dismissed by the defense but um the uh is there when does it go from just i i guess whatever when do you feel like is is it can can you feel like someone was justified in breaking the law without it being nullification or does the justification as soon as you ignore the law it's justification or excuse me, nullification. Nullification. Yeah, I mean, yes. That said, um, there are a whole variety of what are called affirmative defenses, which is essentially the def- the the law recognizing that perhaps the defendant has committed every element of the crime they're accused of, but there was some factor on top of it that means that they shouldn't be convicted. So the insanity defense is a classic one of that. Other defenses are like um, necessity. You know, someone threatened my life unless I broke the law. Um, those ki- there and there are a whole variety of those. And it it's there's there's a legal procedure. The defense raises those issues, and then they have the burden to prove that what whatever the elements of the defense are, um, are in fact true. So, I mean, I guess you could nullify if, like, you thought the person was insane, but the defense didn't raise that as an affirmative defense, but you still acquitted on on the basis of their insanity. That would be nullification. It would Um, or would not? It it would it it would be because so nullification is whenever you because the defense never brought it up. That's right. So whenever you're making an extra legal decision, a, a decision that the law does not compel, that is nullification. And as when the defense, to, excuse yeah, me. So when the defense is, uh, when the defense makes these uh, these arguments, 
are they acting are they asking for nullification or are they ask or are these excuses supposed to be are the excuses built into the law or are they excuses there's a better question do the ex, I, and I don't mean to call them excuses but do the rationalizations for acquittal have to be in the law or can those rationalizations be outside the law um, typically, they have to be in the law, and most states have adopted uh, penal codes that incorporate them. Um, they come from common law, the legal tradition from England, so it's conceivable that they're not in a statute somewhere, but they're nonetheless recognized as the law. Um, but they never just they, – they are recognized legal principles. You don't just sort of make them up. This should be a justification or this should be a justification. They are established, and they theoretically should be applied the same to everyone. And once the defense decides to use this, I'm I'm thinking of this as a debater. So once the defense decides decides to use this this um, strategy, they then have the burden of proof to prove that that person was insane, had some mitigating circumstance allowed by the law to provide for an acquittal. Yes, that's right. I mean, although a, a defendant can defend on multiple grounds, they can say. First of all, you can't prove that I did the crime. But even if you could prove that, I would still have this affirmative defense. So if you, you don't buy you, that, you, you yeah, okay, fine. So it's yes. it's not like a counterplan in debate where that becomes your advocacy. You can you can keep many advocacies. That's right. Uh, yes. Going, going yes you're allowed multiple advocacies, but it is interesting because on and you can kick out of bed any time. <laughs> yeah. Right. I want to hear um, them saying that in a courtroom. That would all hell right. would break. Yeah. I did. I got an F. No, um, the um, the uh, no. It's interesting because on affirmative defenses, the defendant has the burden of proof. You have to prove that you were insane. But on the crime charged, the prosecution has the burden of proof. You have to prove each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Hmm. Interesting. So, going back to the who the agent is. Do you feel, I mean, and this is, I mean, I, when I first look at a topic like this, it reminded me a lot of the civil disobedience resolution where you're sort of saying a government can't actually say you should be civilly disobedient because that sort of defeats, it's not what the government does and, you know, that, that's not a real advocacy. So when we approached it at NFL Nationals that year, we took it from the standpoint of the individual who is about to act. And whether or not they have some moral justification for that act, and whether or not it is morally justified uh, to do that. Um, on this topic, since it is a, is it to protect against government uh, abuse? Is a just check on government. Is it just, just a just check on government? So, would do you feel like, and this is to all of you, do you feel like the affirmative has to prove or that the that the reason that there it can't just be an issue of I feel as though this person was was not guilty, so I'm letting them go. Does there have to be some larger do they does the affirmative have to prove that there's some larger government abuse that they are advocating getting rid of? Um it it like it has to be some like this this law is you feel like this law is uh racist or you feel like this law is uh sexist or it uh, punishes men too much like um, like a, a sexual harassment suit for right. example um, does there have to be some larger social thing because clearly if you nullify in a murder trial government shouldn't have a law 
not allow or government should always have murder laws right so you wouldn't it wouldn't be a, a, to have a murder to nullify a murder trial wouldn't be a check against government abuse would it well, I think it might be because, I mean, it just depends. Um, anytime that you're nullifying, you're checking government in a sense because the government wants to prosecute this person, wants to convict him and send him to jail. So you could be saying the law is not unjust, but the prosecution is unjust. Right, so like in like a battered, like a battered woman syndrome kind of murder yeah. case, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's where this... defense, but yeah. Right, but yeah, but, but I'm just talking about principle, yeah. Right. Yeah, and in fact, what, some of the famous cases of nullification um, are are that just that the law is unjust as applied um, in this circumstance. But there's also um, I mean, the history of white uh, juries letting off white defendants yeah, in that's right. in uh, you know lynchings or whatever. So I mean, essentially, these juries were nullifying. I mean, the 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 law. Um, in a very bad way. I mean, you know, so we're exercising our racism in the jury box. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, there, and there's a lot of that. On, pick up on Beats' example. If you believe that sexual harassment law does a proactively good thing in terms of uh, combating sexism and whatnot, juries that want to uh, nullify in favor of a, of a, a man uh, harassing a woman might be seen as an equally kind of bad thing, or, you know, but bad, bad thing in the same spirit. Well, right. I mean, I could I could see that of a, you know, uh, there's there's a lot of you know backlash against political correctness and things right. like that, where someone would say, "Come on, he just you know whatever," um, and even though the letter of the law is written one way, the the jury could, and and but that goes back to my question as to whether or not it has to be some. Does the justification in the juror's mind have to be some larger check on government? Um, Government, I don't know. To me, does everyone see where I'm coming from on this a little yes. bit? Um, yeah. That that it that it has to be some larger issue at hand for it to be a true check on government because you are saying I believe this law is wrong, aren't you? Or no, you're just saying it's wrong in this instance. Right. That I mean, that would be the argument, and it's sort of the 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 I. The sort of historical background is is that is the idea that juries serve as the conscience of the community, and so it's sort of the last, it's sort of the you know the 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 I don't know the last line of defense against an unjust prosecution, right? The the democratic system fails, and somehow you know somehow the majority passes an unjust law. What a shock! And you know some zealous prosecutor prosecutes it, but then you know in, at the eleventh hour the jury can sort of ride in. And save the day and say no, not in this instance. Um, the, the, but the, I mean, the, the obvious objection is what is what um, is what we've been saying for the last couple of minutes is that how do you, if you can do it in one case, how do you stop it from happening in other cases where we wouldn't want people to nullify or just so rampantly that the law doesn't mean anything anymore? But that you could have a pattern. I mean, I th another one is is drugs, um, drug usage, especially, and juries throwing out. Um, drug use cases. So I'm thinking, I mean, one of the effects of, you know, or a prosecutor is very aggressive and goes out and picks up a lot of users and brings them to trial. And the juries get regularly start throwing these cases out, even though the laws are clear that, oh yeah, the person broke the law, but juries just as a general rule, aren't buying it kind of thing. I mean, certainly, um, 
the message is gotten even at the lowest level of the prosecutor to start ignoring this law because they're just not winning cases anymore because juries just don't buy that this is worth the trouble. Um, that would seem to have an effect. So it's not even changing it, the law. A lot of except, laws are on the books it, that aren't prosecuted. Sure, but that but but see the problem with that, and I think that the, the, a really strong argument would, would be to say that even if there are certain laws, uh, I think I think. Did Beats just get lost? Oh, no, for a moment, looks like Beats got lost on the screen. Sorry. Uh, I think that there's an argument to be made that keeping laws on the books symbolically and not actually changing them also has a really negative effect. I mean, that's why uh, the Supreme Court case in you know, Lawrence v. Texas overturned the, the, the blatantly anti-gay sodomy laws, right? Because even though it took one of those laws, you know, they had to wait for one of those laws to actually uh, be enforced in order to overturn it, the, the, the vast majority of states, those laws were never uh, prosecuted, but there's a strong case to be made that when the state is symbolically against something, that can have pernicious effects as well, right? So, so leaving laws on the books uh, unchecked might not be the best solution either. And I think that there are a lot of strong arguments to be made in that favor. Now, I don't know that the debates will always get that sophisticated on this topic, but I think that would be something that if I were coaching at a you know fairly intense term on this topic, I would block out those kinds of arguments, right? Or say that, or or even make an argument around that that just some, just uh, leaving laws unenforced on the books is still a bad thing. But just on the on the broadest sense, I mean, aren't we saying? I think we're all sort of saying that an affirmative case um, is going to talk about changing the law as as and talking about the effect, so only really directing it towards the effect, and that the negative is going to say, well, people are just going to go off half-cocked all the time, and since you have no control over it whatsoever, it's just practically um, ridiculous, you know. Mm, but I think I think the negative could say that that it just does a better job of changing the law, that even if there, there are temporary problems with the government, you know, having uh, prevented cases from getting to the appellate level is, is doing a, a more functional job of preventing any change, right? I mean, that, that, well, that just, I think that's a does so. Or just does so more legitimately, right? That that right. In, in a negative world, you change laws democratically and not, you know, by the whim of you know whatever random jury you get. I, I mean, I agree completely with that. I just still think it's a, a good argument to say that, like, look, these people, these idealistic people who are nullifying cases, are actually doing a disservice to the cause of changing the law because they're not allowing, a, 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 you know, as Adam puts, to go through the legitimate channels or or through really any channel, right? I mean, again, once you once you shut it down in the jury, that's the end. Yes, they could go and speak. Yes, people could take notice that juries are doing this. But it seems to me that that when we think of great changes to the law, they tend to be uh, Supreme Court cases, right? I mean, that, yeah, I mean, well, that, that's sort of like the, ho the the hollow hope argument too, a little bit that that trying to change the law through the courts. I mean, it's a little bit. That's different, fair. No, 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 that, but, that's fair. But trying to change yeah. the law through the courts, you know, stops. Uh, social movements. I sort of think that's what happened, you know, in California with Prop Eight. I think that we took for granted that the that the courts had done something, and it and it that's made it a very fair argument. And I think actually would be an excellent argument to make on this topic. Uh, speaking of California, I think that there's also, I mean, if we want to talk a little bit about actual examples um, and um, both historically and. Um, I was just editing uh, some of the, the the topic analysis papers that we got, and one of the writers did a list of all the major jury nullification trials. So I have two questions. One, uh, well, two comments. The first is a question: um, Do you what um, does the court determine that nullification has happened, or do they just say like like when you watch? When you watch it, go back to debate. When you watch a debate round and you're like, how in the hell could you vote one way and the judge ends up voting that way? 
and the judge and you and and you like that was just a bad decision that I don't know how they voted that way. Does that who calls it when nullification has happened? Or does someone well, call it? Or do we just always just think, okay, because the jury doesn't have to justify their decision, do they? They just read the no, That's right. They don't have to, although sometimes they do. Um, and so particularly in um, just, you know, in very prominent trials, um, there's no rule that says that prosecutors or press or whomever can't um, ask the jury. And if it's 12 people and someone was just, you know, was was refused, you know, someone's going to talk. So there's no judicial like judicial finding that nullification happened or something like that. But it's pretty common, at least in high profile trials, that you know what the basis of of the jury's decision was. And in fact, sometimes it gets reported to the judge. One of these cases that's about dismissing jurors who intend to nullify is where the foreman came to the judge in the middle of deliberations and said, you know, this guy, juror number eight, is just is just straight up stonewalling and saying and saying he will not apply the law, and and the result was the juror dis- was the that that juror was dismissed. But but um, even absent that, there are lots of ways that the jury can just you know get out there wh- why they voted to acquit. Huh. Uh, so my next my next comment was just going to be I think that there's also a lot of nullification going on in California or or uh, accounts of it. Um, with the three 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 strikes in your outlaw, where people, where they've been asking, uh, where jurors have actually been asking to to know if this would be the third time, because in California, when someone's um, um, uh, uh, com, is com, um, convicted convicted yeah. convicted for uh, three offenses. Uh, anything I think ranging from drug to violent offenses, uh, it could even be three marijuana possessions. They go to jail for 25 to life, always. That's like the rule. Um, so I think juries are starting to, or people are starting to ask, uh, is this the third one? And I think jurors are starting to be a little bit uncomfortable, for example, of sending someone to 25 for life for a marijuana for a marijuana possession or an intent to, you know, kid, a lot of times the first two are when they're kids and then this is when they're a little bit older and, you know, or, you know, there are mitigating cir- or there are extraneous circumstances yeah. where, where they feel as though that should play some role in the trial, even though you're not supposed to, I guess, consider that too. Yeah, and that's interesting because it raises what I think is actually probably a stronger affirmative argument than we're going to change the law by nullifying. Because that really, there's not a lot of evidence to demonstrate that that will happen. Although maybe with with something like the three strikes law, but also just the idea that maybe you know it's the civil disobedience argument, right? That maybe jurors' consciences just should be superior to the law. And so even if you say, I know this isn't going to change anything, but I am not willing to send this person to jail for 25 years and I don't care what the law says because my own conscience is going to come is going to come first there's also that sort of argument which is not really an ends based argument but I think it's I think it's compelling I mean that's a reasonable civil disobedience argument yeah yeah I mean I guess because I thought of civil disobedience immediately I didn't even think about it in terms of broader implications or anything like that I was just thinking of just myself sitting there would I feel like I could do that and I think you know, I I think I probably could if I if but I the, felt but like there is a thing where if you, all right, you can have your conscience, but there's eleven other people on the jury. I mean, so 
just because my conscience says I don't like this law, whatever, doesn't mean I'm going to even get the verdict that I want. I mean, but I get a hung jury or something, um, or I get just thrown off the jury or something like that. I wonder. I mean, do I? I mean, we get back to the practical stuff that Adam was talking about, or at least a different approach to that practical stuff. I mean, is it is this at all um, actually an effective way to express your conscience? I, I mean, do you, I don't under. I don't think that. Uh... I've never been one to say that once something ha- it has to be u- like my decisions don't have to be universalized, and just you know in this instance I think I could say that I just in this instance I couldn't, for example, just uh, uh, c- you know convict this person. Uh, I don't think that it. I have to say that everyone should do that in this. If but aren't you usually asked and before the you know you're going to be interviewed and they're going to say can you convict or blah 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 you, your various beliefs about this and then you'll just get thrown off. So don't you have to at one point lie about this or hope that they don't ask you the right question so that you can come and turn around and say well no actually I I don't really think I can convict somebody. I mean if I'm a if I'm a lawyer. Um, I want to make sure that all the people there are going to convict or not convict, but not that anybody's going to be practically saying, no, I'm not going to convict no matter what you say. I mean, so I, I want to get I, that person off in the first place. I mean, place. I would think I would have the ability to say that without lying. I think I do have the ability to, if all the, I, I definitely have the ability to convict, but I also have, you know, I, I think I would maybe. Uh, but wait, I mean, your conscience isn't going to kick in after the tr- you start here. I mean, you know, you'll know, you know what the trial is about be, when you're, when you're sitting there during, uh, yeah. you know, what year so. And and I think I could convict, but I'm just saying that I could also not convict. Yeah, I mean, but you also you take an oath to follow the law when you're going to be on a jury. Um, But also, you know, you do that beforehand and then maybe you sit through 15 hours of testimony about, you know, the fact that this person has all these mitigating circumstances and the police beat them up when they caught them. And, you know, their income is the sole supporter for 15 nuns and 25 (laughs) orphans. And, you know, um, and then maybe later you say, well, I, you know, I thought that I could apply the law in every instance, but now, you know, knowing all the factors in the full context, now my conscience just does not permit me um, to convict this person. But that sounds like we're actually just buying his extenuating circumstances rather than throwing out the law. But the, but the process, I mean, the defense didn't have to say, uh, the defense didn't have to say you should let him, they're not, if, they're not going for that argument. They're just mentioning it, Right. As, That's right. Or it comes as, up because it's not a legal right, they, they can't, right, exactly. They, they can't, can't say, make that argument. They can't they say, can't I'm say. sorry, I, 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 I broke the law, but, you know, my family really needs me. <laughs> well, you know, we send people to jail whose families really need them every day. That's not a legal defense. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I, I, I think that, I, I guess, I think that the more strategic, the most, I would think that the most strategic affirmative would sort of take that the route of the individual person not even feeling like they have to universalize it. I guess though, you sort of the resolution does ask for a universal It's talking it principle and it's talking uh checks on government here. That's pretty big. Yeah, That's the, pretty universal. Yeah. But I the mean what's the, the word principle, principle right? the principle is the dumbest thing to in this resolution. Why did they because I <laughs> yeah. think when we first Adam, you can correct me if I'm wrong, didn't we both say why is the word principle in there? Yeah, we we did. Although I have to say, uh, it it does it does offer this idea, which is that 
of course no one's going to say you should always nullify, right? So the only thing the affirmative could be defending is the idea that juries may nullify, right? That they would be justified in evaluating the law according to their own consciences. So there is that. But I agree. I just think jury nullification as a just check on government probably would have would have sufficed. I have a question about um, what's the difference between a hung jury? Is, there this, is it the same implication? Is is it the can a person be tried again if there's a hung hung a hung jury? Um, it depends on the state. As my understanding is that there are different state rules on what you do in relation to a hung jury. You don't want to. You couldn't, for example, have hung jury after hung jury after hung jury and keep trying a person. That would almost certainly be a violation of their rights. But there are um, times, and I'm a little, you know, I'm a little fuzzy on this, so don't quote me. This should be looked up. But, but there are times, I believe, when a hung jury can result in um, can result in a new trial. Because it seems like. If, if there's no difference, then why wouldn't – I mean, then what's the real implication? If in both instances the person is going to be let free and they can't be tried again uh, – Well, I suppose that – Could the negative jury... just – could the negative just counterplan with argue for hung jury? Hung jury – no. I mean, could the hung jury doesn't mean they're going off forever. They can be tried again. And as, as Adam says, there's various rules and regulations. I mean, my understanding is that you need to have – I mean, the prosecution is going to have to have some other evidence and better something a little different, but uh, to make also, the case, wait, wait, but not even so, necessarily. So, I mean, wait a second. I, when, there, when there's a hung jury, though, what is the official verdict? There is no verdict. Right? There is so, no verdict. The trial, so, so for all practical purposes, hasn't happened. Right. Exactly. So symbolically, the, the there's a, there's also a difference with what is said at the end of the trial. Practically speaking, though, if you go through prosecution and you go through the whole song and dance and you ended up with a hung jury, how likely is the district attorney going to be to do it again? Not all that likely um, unless there's some really bizarre thing that happened in in during the during the jury uh, deliberation. But it's probably right. It's probably state by state. I guess I still think that there's a lot to be said about these like symbolic function of the law arguments. I think that those could be pretty compelling, particularly given the types of judges that, that so many people are going to get on this topic. At least that's my take on it. I think that's right. I mean, Butler makes that argument, right, that there is a role that um, black jurors play in the criminal justice system. Um, and he cites some case law that indicates that part of the reason we have that we want juries that are representative of the community is because there's a, a symbolic function of to being um, judged by you know judged by a jury of your peers and these kinds of things. So um, certainly one can argue that there's a kind of political statement being made um, when you um, enter the the jury box, and so maybe that's a reason why. Um, why it can't just be apply the law because no matter what you do you're making a political statement and even if you'd say i was just applying the law you're making a political statement in defense of the status quo um and so maybe that's an argument that says your conscience is always implicated you can't absolve yourself of responsibility by just saying you know i was doing what i was told okay i think it makes sense yeah. Something tells me this is not going to be a good, good topic to argue. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, well, I thought the debates at the summer program were interesting. See, I, I guess Adam made a really interesting comment before that he thought that it would take time for the topic to develop and you just yeah. don't get that time. 
On the other hand, some of us thought that this is the kind of topic where it almost felt like it was a very limited topic in the sense that, that it was an ideal topic for a time period like November, December, or March, April where you wouldn't, where it wouldn't get tired after a while. But maybe, maybe we were just wrong on that. I mean, Adam, why, what, what did you mean by that before? You just meant that, that the topic yeah. has to find itself in terms of what a principle is, et cetera, or what? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there are not a great variety of substantive arguments that at least present themselves immediately. Of course, you could probably spitball, you know, ad infinitum different arguments you could make. But I think it probably, I mean, honestly, I think the ideal length of time is like September, October, where you, um, where it's longer than probably the November, December topic is. So you have a little time to work things out, but not long enough that, you know, you start hearing the same round every time or something like that but it's hard to get the right balance i think one of the problems with this is also people don't know a lot of stuff about it and everybody's going to have to do a lot of research legal research and, and it's going to take a while to get that kind of stuff straight and to get it right you know i mean we're all you know amateurs at this kids certainly are amateurs they're not lawyers so to to track down meaningful examples is going to be difficult that they can really use i think that's right what are some of the uh, like the cases where people think are are, are is there a lit? I mean, I can pull up this. I, I don't remember who wrote it, but um, you know, I think that there that that we had. I was in, in in doing the topic analysis books, editing it. I think someone did put like a list of some of the the more common uh, the cases where I think people believed that. Jury, or or it was explicitly said that you know jury nullification did take place. Um, are there are there some places where people should start to look at the opinions or legal opinions on where it did take place? You know, I don't know of any. I, you know, I don't know of any list. Um, the cases you'll the cases you'll get in relation to nullification will all be about some of those issues. Those issues that I talked about. Well, how should we instruct jury? Should we dismiss jurors, etc. So if you search for cases on jury nullification, you're probably going to get stuff that's actually not right on point. Other than, I mean, frankly, there aren't many cases that say jury nullification is a good thing. There are a few. but Who's typing? You know, Me, because I'm pulling up something to answer your question, Mr. Beats. <laughs> I've got I it can, right here for you. <laughs> I, can type, right. I can type quietly. I've been typing. True. That's fair. All right. Can I, okay. Can I, can I, I butt in? Here's a list that uh, Christian Tarsney put together. But this you is go. so rude. Okay, fine. Read okay, so so Christian Tarsney in his uh, topic analysis wrote that Josh Liburn in 1649 and 6053, um, one of the first recognized cases of jury nullification, Lilburn was tried first for treason, then four years later for libel because of his support of the recently ousted Cromwell government. The jury found him not guilty both times. The first yeah, time in I response mean, to an explicit challenge by Lilburn. Uh, the next is the Bushels case. Uh, they're, they're those famous old English cases. I think the one that you read about a lot is the Haymarket case, where where William Penn was was tried for you know preaching uh, preaching Quakerism in a illegal public gathering or something, and and the oh, jury the Bushels case, something like that. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I I know it is the Haymarket case, but I guess I I don't. That could it could well have multiple titles, but yeah, uh, I don't, uh, yeah then, but I mean, 
that kind of stuff, it's tough because, you know, with old examples, first of all, I mean, the laws, uh, you know, the laws evolved, but also, you know, it, it probably happens more often. I mean, the interesting thing is if we started having a different attitude towards nullification and there was widespread nullification, you know, what kind of an effect would that have? You know, I actually really don't know if we nullified a lot or at least more than we do now, what kind of effect that would have on our legal culture, um, for example. Um, you know, or would we would we argue for nullification every time, or could we really could it really be kind of an exceptional case? I mean, jurors do take their charge seriously for what it's worth. Um, you know, they're not always terribly reliable in applying the law correctly. But you know, I mean, I I could be persuaded by arguments that say that even if we allowed jury nullification, or if jury nullification happened quite a lot, that it would still be a relatively exceptional thing. But you could also argue that you can agree that there are instances where nullification can, where there's exceptions, but you, we would never vote affirmative because you would not want it to become widespread. That voting affirmative means you're giving a check or a blank check to juries to say, do what you want. And that's what voting affirmative means. That we can that there are some instances where there's exceptions and it, you know sometimes there are bad laws, but on as a general rule, we ought not be affirming just is everyone okay? I'm okay. <laughs> okay, so here a couple a couple um, more instances SPARF SPARF versus United States in 1895. Christian writes, probably the most significant piece of case law relating to nullification. This case represented a sea change in U.S. law by upholding a jury verdict in a case where a judge instructed the jury that they were only empowered to decide the facts of the little case before them and declaring such instructions, even if misleading, were legitimate and even desirable. From Sparf onwards, U.S. jurisprudence has been mainly hostile towards nullification. Right. This is so, the on the Fuller Court. There's that, there are a lot of articles about this. That and then I mean, that's still an issue about instructions, right? It's not yeah. is it allowed or not. It's just do we is it yeah, but, is it reversible error to instruct a jury that they may not nullify even if they can. Um, then in 1972, United States versus Doherty, the most recent major piece of case law concerning nullification. Doherty is very much in line with the anti-nullification tenor of Sparfling that the defense need not be allowed to present arguments for nullification at trial. I think there's another case that's earlier, Georgia v. Brailsford, I think it's from the late seven, somewhere in the 1790s that, that comes up a lot in the topic literature as well. Yeah. In terms of proponents yeah. of jury nullification. Yeah, it's Georgia v. It Brailsford. It was part of common law. Yeah, I think that was a common law thing. I just want to interject but with with okay, I'm sorry. It was a favorable attitude. This one this one presented a favorable attitude towards nullification. Whereas I think the the 1895 and 1970 yeah. were not Correct. Correct. George V. Brailsford comes up in a lot in articles that say that jury nullification is okay. Now there's an yeah, article that oh, I'm sorry, Adam, what were you saying? No, no, no. Go ahead. Well, I just want to say one quick thing. There's this really good article. Um, this is not a specific case, but, but it's an academic article that gives a, a pretty good historical overview and has a lot of citations in it. Um, and it is by two authors named Alan Shefflin and John Van Dyke. And the name of the, uh, uh, the, name of the article is Jury Nullification, the Contours of a Controversy. It's an article from 1980. So there have been a lot of changes in the case law since then. Um, 
But I think it's important in terms of the really large section on the history of jury nullification and some background in terms of the general arguments, right? Because even if the article is outdated in terms of the specifics of present-day jury nullification, the arguments themselves are, are at least fairly timeless. Yeah, and it's interesting, it's interesting to note when earlier cases, especially cases that are right around the time the Constitution is written, talk more favorably about nullification because – Issue, because when you appeal these issues and you're asking, was a person's right to a fair trial or their right to a jury trial, which are separate rights in the Constitution, impeded by this instruction or this action by the judge or whatever, um, there are different ways of, of, of asking the question whether or not that right was violated. And one is to ask, well, what did the right to a jury trial mean when the Constitution was written, right? This is sort of the theory of interpretation known as originalism. And an argument that um, people will make is that at the time of the, the, the Constitution was written, um, there are cases that indicate that um, nullification was a more accepted practice. And indeed, you know, that generation of cases and, and of, you know, the people um, were very concerned about, you know, how to, you know, adequately check the government. And so um, it might be that, um, you know, it's inherent as part of, it's implied as part of the right to a jury trial that the jury can acquit you if they think the law is unjust, constitutional. <laughs> hmm. I, I, I love that. <laughs> the whole, an originalist approach um, to this, I think it's fascinating. That's great. Okay. I, got, I, I think we covered a lot here. Yeah. This is really good. I mean, oh my God, we have 48 minutes. That's really good. Adam, I'm really glad you were able to come on. You actually know something about the topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I just made everything up. So you guys. Uh, well, that's what we've been doing for the last uh, 12 episodes or whatever. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, well, nice. thank you very much for having me on, guys. I appreciate the invitation. Well, thank you, Adam. We'd glad love to have here. you back. Uh, yeah, definitely. Okay, everybody, um, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Good night. Yep. Good night. Good night. <laughs>